Today on Against the Grain, the urgency of the climate crisis can't be overstated. Yet the impediments to a rapid shift to a carbon-free future are numerous. These include not just the obvious problem of the entrenched political power of the fossil fuel industry, but according to Holly Jean Buck, national revenues derived from fossil fuels and the elimination of well-paid, often union jobs in that sector. She argues for left coalitions linking rural and urban people to head off the potential political backlash against renewable energy. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. The latest report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is dire. Irreversible global warming looms, and the task now is to reduce its effects from catastrophic to merely disastrous. The stakes at the Climate Summit in Glasgow couldn't be higher, though expectations remained low, judging from past meetings of world leaders. Holly Jean Buck is Assistant Professor of Environment and Sustainability at the University at Buffalo. In Ending Fossil Fuels, Why Net Zero is Not Enough, she details what it will take to put the fossil fuel industry out of business, including a roadmap for this decade. Holly, while many of us are concerned that too little has been done to slow the climate crisis, we hear in the realm of officialdom that major change is afoot that coal is on the way out and that natural gas may even follow it. What do you make of such rhetoric? I think that's definitely the case. I think that there's a lot of signals going around um, about the, the need to not just phase out coal, but potentially a peak in demand for oil coming sooner rather than later. Even conversations about the eventual phase out of gas in some places. So the conversation has shifted more to, you know, what's the timeline for this? Um, at the same time, you know, we, we now are facing this energy crunch, particularly in Europe and in China. Um, I mean, just in the past few months, really. And so that's throwing some of this signaling into disarray. Um, and one of the main points I've been talking about is, you know, we can't mistake the signals and the discourse for changes in material reality. So there's a danger that we have this social norm that's like this bottom-up delegitimization of fossil fuels. People understand that they're dirty and deadly, but that that changing norm may only go so far into actually material changes on the ground. Right. So in a sense, you're saying that there's this rhetoric from below that has sort of proliferated, but what may sound like significant movement for the ears of some people may mean something quite different for others. And I, and with that in mind, I wanted to ask you about the discourse at the level of elites. And as far as they indicate anything that can be seen as real, what can we see with the financial prospects as reflected in markets of fossil fuels like natural gas? Right. I mean, it's confusing because on one hand, you have, you know, people like Larry Fink at BlackRock making kind of signals about um, not investing in fossil fuels. You, you have, you know, the International Energy Agency, which up to this date has been pretty pro-fossil fuels, you know, talking about net zero and demand declines and so forth. At the same time, there's still plenty of investment in production. And so you can look at the the gap that's been um, the so-called production gap, right? So if we wanted to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, um, which is the ambition in the Paris Agreement, countries would need to be decreasing fossil fuel production by 6% a year over this decade. But instead, they're planning to increase production 2% a year. Um, and, you know, the energy crisis may complicate this further. And you'll see some people calling for increased production because of that. There's definitely a mismatch between elite signals and elite actions. 
So, of course, one event, if we can call it that, that has perhaps thrown a spanner into the works of these broader questions about phasing out fossil fuels has been the COVID pandemic. On the one hand, production slowed down initially during the first months of COVID, and yet at a time where governments were spending at historic levels in terms of COVID relief, how were the phase out of fossil fuels considered in the mix? Yeah, this was a tremendous missed opportunity in terms of the funds that were spent on COVID stimulus that really ignored the the challenge of phasing out fossil fuels. And so, I mean, there's things that governments could have done to spur clean energy. They could have really moved away from fossil fuels at that time. And I mean, it was basically ignored. And I don't think that's unfair to say. Well, you know, we've heard, in fact, over decades of denial, those who would take the climate crisis as not particularly serious, all sorts of elite efforts to play it down, and then all sorts of foot dragging, as you just mentioned, missed opportunities for actually making a dent in slowing the climate crisis by reducing fossil fuels as fast as possible. But you also argue in your book that there are actually impediments to moving off of fossil fuels right away. I mean, unquestionably, that would be the best course of action. But there are actually impediments that aren't just to do with the ill will of elites or the rapaciousness of oil companies. So I wanted to ask you about those, starting with the question of whether renewables at this point would be adequate to replace fossil fuels if, you know, by some miracle, governments decided to rapidly phase them out, you know, over the, the next few years. Right. So I think there's a lot of optimism around renewables just because the the growth of wind and solar really outpaced what experts forecast. I mean, it's been really remarkable. It's a source of great hope. At the same time, we're at the situation where fossil fuels are still providing more than 84% of primary energy. So wind, solar, even biofuels are growing fast, but are still at just about 5%, right? And then you've got hydroelectricity providing just over 6%, nuclear 4%. So wind and solar have been growing dramatically, but are still pretty um, minimal in the energy mix. So then the question is, okay, what if we scale them up with great ambition, which definitely we should. I still think there's going to be a role for things like enhanced geothermal for some other technologies that can provide baseload energy. but I do think that would be doable with enough ambition. It's a question of how quickly can we get there. I think another big challenge here is that a lot of global oil production, so over half of it and even more than that of reserves, is owned by national oil companies, which are fully or majority owned by governments. So it's not just a question of you know getting rid of the household names we know, you know Shell, BP. It's that the production of these fuels is really caught up with governments um, in ways that makes it challenging. Not impossible, just challenging. Yeah, so in other countries, which aren't as dominated by the private sector, you have countries whose national revenue is is partly dependent on the income from fossil fuel production, including things like, what, funding healthcare and so on? Yeah, I mean, governments are driving income from licenses, taxes on production, taxes on consumption. And to turn away from those revenues will really require a lot of planning. And another impediment that you flag is that although there's been a lot of discussion of the need with a just energy transition to create all sorts of green jobs, there's no question that the number of people who work in the fossil fuel sector is enormous you know, numbering the millions. And those are often well-paid union jobs that if they were eliminated, would not miraculously be replaced by unionized jobs in renewable energy and so on. Exactly. And these jobs are often concentrated in particular communities. And so they support other jobs in that community as well. And we'll return to this theme because you're arguing that we need to take these actual impediments to a very rapid transition from fossil fuels. 
into account because you still think that's an important ambition. And also because, as we'll return to later in the hour, some of these anyway feed into the potential of sort of political resistance to an energy transition to renewable energies, you know, including from, from say, workers. And so hence, this is something that you argue we need to take seriously. But I'd like to ask you, if you could define the term net zero. Uh, it is a term that has entered the discourse and probably more than most of us realize in the midst of all these discussions about phasing out fossil fuels, net zero is now being considered as an important alternative that supposedly takes into account at least some of the difficulties of moving off fossil fuels immediately. Can you tell us what net zero means, where the term comes from? Yeah, net zero simply means balancing some amount of remaining emissions with some amount of negative emissions or carbon removals so that they zero out. Um, it's kind of the stream of this world in balance. And we got there largely because climate professionals, po you know, policymakers, experts, scientists, modelers saw that we were too late with mitigation um, to curb warming to safe levels, but saw kind of a pathway that this net zero concept could buy us more time to scale up technologies for the things that are really hard to decarbonize. So there's the question of, you know, how many emissions are left over? How many negative emissions do you need to compensate for them? And net zero is pretty convenient, you know, for, for a whole variety of actors in that it doesn't specify how many emissions will be left over. You could imagine a very small amount of emissions left over, but you could imagine like some oil companies do that there'll be a lot of emissions left over and we're just going to build out this huge carbon removal infrastructure to cancel them out. Well, you're starting on it already, but I wanted to ask you, what are the problems with this notion of net zero, both in terms of trying to address the climate emergency and also politically in how it shifts what people might think, you know, needs to be accomplished and sort of the terrain people are struggling over? Yeah, I think there's three big limitations to this term and the way of thinking about the climate action that it implies. The first, like I just mentioned, there's no definition of what kind of activities are hard to decarbonize. There's no limits on these leftover or residual emissions. The second thing is that it's kind of a way to avoid talking about production. So all of climate policy has been focused basically on emissions. So what happens after the point of combustion of these fossil fuels? And then if you're thinking about that, you don't have to give space and attention to the production of the fossil fuels, which is really also where we need to be focusing, because even if we scaled up renewables tremendously, um, we still have to leave a lot of carbon in the ground. And that's going to be hard because there's vested interests in producing that carbon. So we need attention to that part of it. And the third thing is that more broadly, it just kind of strips the broader socio-ecological crisis from focus. I mean, we have concerns around biodiversity and water scarcity, other types of sustainability concerns. We also have social concerns that are wrapped up in the production of fossil fuels, um, impacts on environmental justice communities, public health concerns, a lot of other stuff. And, you know, just focusing narrowly on emissions, on carbon, on net zero goals, kind of leaves all of that out of view. Holly Jean Buck is my guest. She's the author of Ending Fossil Fuels, Why Net Zero is Not Enough. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Well, uh, one concept that could be paired with the idea of net zero is a notion which sounds like a contradiction in terms of low carbon fossil fuels. Can you tell us what low carbon fossil fuels means and what you think of it? So the oil and gas industry is moving to produce differentiated products that are low carbon intensity. 
um, meaning that there's less emissions associated with the, the production of these fossil fuels. And there's a bunch of creative ways they have to um, construct these commodities. Some of the things, I mean, things they should be doing if they're going to exist, like detecting methane leaks, capturing methane. Um, they're also working on decarbonizing the transportation of the fuels, um, using carbon capture and storage and refining. They're also thinking about how to couple direct air capture, so machines that suck carbon out of the atmosphere um, and produce CO2 with something called enhanced oil recovery, which involves injecting CO2 into a depleted well to get more oil out of it. The CO2 can stay there in the well, so arguably the life cycle of that process is low carbon, even carbon neutral or carbon negative, depending on how it's done. The gas industry is also thinking about blending in hydrogen um, to gas. That's another way of having a lower carbon gas. So there's a bunch of things that you know they can do to produce these things that are lower carbon. Um, and the challenge there is there's going to be demands for fossil fuels if renewables are considered unreliable if there's disruptions to electricity, to supply. Um, and so then the fossil fuel industry will be, okay, here's this decarbonized fossil fuel. It's better for the climate. It still has these attributes of being dependable. Um, and so I think there's a real danger that we get sucked into this vision of lower carbon fossil fuels that is basically considered good enough, right? Right. And there probably are some listeners out there who have sort of apocalyptic images of nothing happening at all and might say, well, this idea of low carbon fossil fuels doesn't sound great, but it sounds better than the sort of apocalyptic alternative. And therefore, should we provisionally support it until there's time for something better? Yeah, and I could understand that argument if it was only about climate change, maybe, but there's actually a lot of other reasons to have a planned phase out of fossil fuels besides climate change. So we can think about the public health and environmental justice concerns around extraction. Um, you know, air pollution from combusting fossil fuels, according to a really important study that recently came out, found that in 2018, air pollution from fossil fuels was responsible for 8.7 million deaths. I mean, that's a tremendous death toll from the, the air quality impacts of these fuels. Pollution accounted for one in five of all deaths that year. We can also think about how fossil fuels are really suffocating innovation. Fossil fuel companies have blocked a lot of imported new technologies. Um, they're really standing in the way of better stuff we could have. And they're also tangled with corruption um, in a lot of ways. And this is complex. I mean, I'm not suggesting that the resource curse framing is exactly the right one, but we can look at the evidence to say that um, they do have a role in oppression, corruption, poverty, perhaps even war and conflict. Um, and so phasing out fossil fuels could do a lot more for us besides um, confronting climate change. So if the idea of net zero carbon and of low carbon fossil fuels are sort of insufficient to get us to where it seems like there's a pretty broad consensus that phasing out fossil fuels altogether is absolutely necessary. And you've noted the impediments, the challenges that social movements face and governments face in making the shift to a world without fossil fuels. And yet you also still are optimistic that, that such a change can happen. So I wanted to ask you, how do you think about the different challenges there are and, and how one might deal with them, starting with the issue of culture? So I think that phasing out fossil fuels, you know, it's an infrastructural challenge. It's a political one, but it's also a problem of cultural change. So by that, I mean, we need to evolve new values, beliefs, practices, and rituals around two things that I focus on. One is getting comfortable with endings. So seeing endings as a source of empowerment rather than a source of decline. 
And I mean, I think we can see the ways in which kind of fear of endings of of slipping or losing power has, you know, infused politics, especially in, in the U.S. But actually, there's all sorts of things that we need to end, not just fossil fuels. We need to be a society that, that develops the capacity to end everything from, you know, single-use plastics to toxic technology platforms. And if we could see the capacity to end things as something that's empowering, I think that would help a lot. I also think that another cultural challenge is just learning to plan on these longer timescales. We live in a very short-term society. We don't have kind of the social technologies for planning in the long term. Um, And so that's an institutional challenge, but it's also a cultural one. And then of other obstacles to deal with, what about the complexities of international relations in terms of uh, nation states phasing out fossil fuels, how they do it, etc.? Yeah, I think one thing we need to keep in mind is that different countries are in really different situations. So there's no like one size fits all roadmap. We have to really support each country in developing its own roadmap and phasing out fossil fuels. And one of the things I'm concerned about is that we could have this situation where in the so-called green half of the world, people are really self-congratulatory about reaching net zero. They, they, amount, they still consume some small amount of fossil fuels, but they have their you know, direct air capture plants that are spinning to compensate for these leftover emissions. They have their mega reforestation projects, and they're feeling pretty smug about that. But then you have this fossilized half of the world where energy-reliant economies, producer nations, are still cranking out these fossil fuels and selling them to nations that haven't been able to organize or afford these vast renewable infrastructures and the grid needed to make them work and the carbon removal capacity and all of that. So it's a question about, I think, how developed countries, you know, global north, rich countries, however you want to call the the polluters that are responsible for this, um, that have the capacity to start this transition, how are they going to really support other countries in transitions that are tailor-made for their context? And so I think we need diplomacy focused on this. I think we need smart technology transfer programs, and we need the international community to step up and do more than the you know 100 billion in climate finance they have promised and not delivered. Um, I mean, that is a like, super baseline starting point is, you know, honoring coming good on those broken promises, but then being much more ambitious because um, if we don't help every country make this transition, the whole planet will suffer for it. I'd like to ask you about technology, which isn't just the materials for, say, wind turbines or solar panels. And that is the kind of computing capacity that is necessary to make an energy transition. There's this question of how do we know when we've reached net zero? So in order to know that, you have to be tracking both emissions and carbon removals. Um, And that might seem like something that's doable. I mean, theoretically, it's doable. But the challenges of of knowing that, uh, you know, they really hinge on computing power. So if you're going to know what the, your emissions are, um, if, say you're a company trying to track your emissions, you have to understand the emissions throughout your whole supply chain. And you know there's something like 30,000 parts that go into an automobile. Then you have to know kind of what are the emissions of all those factories manufacturing those 30,000 parts. I mean, it's a huge um, monitoring challenge. So there's you know, a lot of software being developed to try to help companies with that. Um, and assuming that you can sense and track all of the emissions, you know, not just from manufacturing, but from buildings, from agriculture, from land use change, all of that stuff, you also have to be able to understand the removals, which 
is challenging depending on you know what technology you're using. Maybe it's somewhat easy if you have something like direct air capture where you are collecting the carbon and injecting it underground. But things like afforestation, um, soil carbon have actually been proved pretty challenging to monitor. There's there's ways in which biological systems can frustrate our ambitions to really measure every part of them. And then you, you have to have a platform where these emissions and removals are exchanged, um, kind of matched up. And so we have these, you know, we have these voluntary carbon markets that don't work particularly well. They have all these infrastructural and trust challenges. Um, there's a lot of fraud that happens. Um, but, you know, assuming that can be governed is kind of a, a big assumption. And I think that there's some dangers inherent actually in how these platforms and the software behind them are set up. Definitely, you're going to have people who want to kind of take a profit from those exchanges. That's how capitalism works, right? And then there's also tendencies to financialize some of those transactions to speculate upon them. And so the design of these platforms um, institutionally and even in, to the level of the code, I think is really important for governing this whole project of net zero. And what about infrastructure more broadly? How is that a crucial and difficult aspect of the phasing out of fossil fuels? This is actually the the dimension that I feel the most optimistic about because, um, I mean, at least here in the U.S., we've had great studies by a number of authors that detail exactly where the coal plants, the, the natural gas plants, et cetera, um, are and kind of su suggest a sequencing to phasing them out. Um, so we understand kind of where the worst polluting ones are. We understand what their water impacts are. We understand the economic impacts and the jobs associated with that. Um, we kind of have a picture infrastructurally around how to retire these things. It's more of a matter of um, working with utilities and other actors to develop those plans. And then, of course, you know, the one I think is striking to many people, at least on the left, is just the lack of sufficient political power and harness collective power to force elites to make the changes that need to happen. And I wanted to ask you about that question of political power and how it also relates to the rural-urban divide in which often left-wing or progressive politics are most visibly originating out of metropolitan areas, and often, more frequently anyway, there's some scorn for people in rural areas as not being sufficiently enlightened. So I write about this um, somewhat in my book, and more so in my research, I've, um, I'm trained as a rural sociologist and a lot of my field work involves, you know, going to rural communities and talking to people about what they think about the energy transition and carbon management and all, all these kind of ideas that in some sense are coming their way because people in, you know, coastal areas, urban areas have developed these plans that they hope will manifest across, you know, the, the land in the U.S., but it's really up to rural communities to accept and develop these technologies, right? So it's not just about carbon removal, it's about wind and solar and new transmission lines and things like that. Renewables are very land intensive. Um, and so we really need support and from rural communities. And we to get that, we need to have real benefits for them. And so part of the political power I discuss is, you know, how can we work people, you know, in universities and cities like myself, work better with rural communities to develop visions of, um, you know, a decarbonized world that really works for them. Um, another thing I talk about in terms of building political power is learning lessons from other things where we've attempt to, attempted to phase out things that aren't serving us. So looking at plastics or ozone-depleting substances or tobacco. Um, and so I think part of the responsibility here is on 
this kind of professional class of urbanite workers that needs to take up this view that these um, phase outs are sensible. This is something that happened for both tobacco and plastic ba bag bans. It was really um, a coalition of kind of elites saying that this is a realistic thing, but also people on the ground um, advocating for that. And these things have taken, you know, a lot of work, each of these examples, a decade of early work before they were considered seriously um, and they weren't accomplished fully, right? They kind of have this long tail. So we're not done phasing out plastics clearly, um, even though there's been some early wins, we're not done phasing out tobacco either, even though there's been a peak and decline. So um, how do we, you know, not mistake this discursive peak, uh, this moment when the narrative or the norm switches over for a success? I think that's something that political movements will have to always keep our eyes on. You're listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. My guest today is the author of Ending Fossil Fuels, Why Net Zero is Not Enough. That's published by Verso. Her name is Holly Jean Buck, and she's Assistant Professor of Environment and Sustainability at the University of Buffalo. She's also the author of After Geoengineering. You mentioned uh, a few minutes ago about the challenges of making sure that rural communities are part of the struggle for the climate and that in many ways they benefit from renewable energy since the estimates for the kind of scale of solar panels and wind turbines that would be necessary to replace fossil fuels is really striking. I mean, it's, you know, the, the landscape in many, many places would be quite different. And one of the things that you note as a challenge for the struggle around euthanizing the fossil fuel industry is that there's the potential, uh, what you call the coming disenchantment with renewables. I wonder if you could tell us more about that. What do you envision and um, what are the political implications? Yeah, unfortunately, since I wrote this book, we've started to see some of this. So I think that there's several demands to the possible disenchantment with renewables. One involves the land use required. Um, another involves the materials required. And, you know, some scholars like Thea Riafrancos have written about the, the demands for lithium for batteries. There's a lot of critical materials that are going to be extracted to support this renewable infrastructure. Um, and then there's reliability concerns. We've seen this, um, you know, it, with the Texas blackout, I mean, maybe the most recent example where um, Tucker Carlson has a new special episode about that blaming wind for it, right? We know that actually gas was mostly responsible for that, but you'll see these kind of critiques about um, reliability and renewables. And then the just the costs of energy, you know, right now, in some places in Europe, gas is costing six times what it did earlier this year. And that's a big deal if that is um, seen as linked with renewables. There could be a pretty significant backlash to climate policies. And I think a lot of politicians are worried about that right now. And it's already being framed that way, right? I mean, I, I've certainly seen in the media those who are saying the energy crunch is uh, at least partially the fault of investors putting money into renewable energy and not investing in fossil fuel. Yeah, and I actually think there's a kernel of truth to that. I mean, I think there's several factors of which that might be probably a smaller one. Um, but to me, that just highlights the need for a planned and managed decline of fossil fuels, not some crazy unplanned market driven phase out. We really need government to step in and set out plans for this so that it proceeds smoothly and in ways that don't hurt people's pocketbooks. Right. I mean, and it seems that one of the crucial things that you're arguing in ending fossil fuels is that the process in which fossil fuels are phased out is crucial. I mean, crucial for justice. It's crucial that social movements engage with sometimes technical nitty-gritty to figure out 
what is actually on the table because uh, the outcomes are quite different and hence these are things that could be very much shaped by from below movements if they become strong enough and with that end in mind you write about the kind of toolbox that you think is needed for this decade the 2020s that you know fossil fuels are not going to be phased out entirely in the next 10 years uh, sadly but for the kind of slowing of the climate disaster that needs to happen as soon as possible in this decade what sort of tools are at our disposal to force governments and force corporations to take the actions that need to be taken? So I was thinking about what's kind of a decade-long program for a multi-decade project. And I talk about five different tools, um, two of them which are relatively easy compared to the other three and that we should be working on right now. And I'm just going to say up front that none of these tools is perfect. So there's some dangers or drawbacks in each of them that we have to be cautious of. But like, clearly, I think we can do this. And so the first two ones to begin right now, um, there's a collection of things around moratoria, bans, refusal to finance. So we can think about bans on exploration, bans on extraction, on export and on technology that uses fossil fuels, such as internal combustion engines or um, gas-powered stoves. And these are not just bans that could take place on the national level. Presumably, these are some of these are actions that can be taken on the level of municipalities or states. Exactly. Yeah, like you know, California's had <laughs> um, movement away from internal combustion engines, and you've got these great local bans in places like Berkeley and other communities um, on the gas-fired stoves and infrastructure sort of thing. So I think those are really important. Um, Those are obviously something that people are doing now, um, and they can help not lock in more dirty infrastructure. Um, And so those are things that can be explored on lots of different scales. There's also potential for some global coordination or treaty around this. Um, I just wanted to mention the fossilfueltreaty.org is a non-proliferation treaty. Um, so I think that's, you know, I'm, I don't know if I'm super optimistic about that, but I think it's an important thing to consider and organize around. Um, there's some challenges to some of these moratorium ideas, which I talk about, including something called investor state dispute settlement. So if a government that does does something that impacts the profitability of an investment from a foreign entity that goes to an arbitration process that is usually really favorable to the investor, there's some, you know, legal and political obstacles here. But I think it's um, an important tool in the toolbox that we've already started on and can expand on right now. The second thing that I think is, you know, relatively doable that, that demands our attention is ending subsidies, which I'm sure people have heard a lot about. So between 300 and $600 billion a year goes to support fossil fuels in a host of different ways. There's um, about $100 billion for producer subsidies. Those are for upstream exploration and production. Clearly, we should be getting rid of those. There's also a lot of money in consumer subsidies, which make energy cheaper for users. Um, Those are often socially regressive, meaning that the benefits flow to middle and upper income households disproportionately. But the one thing about subsidies is that there's a way in which removing those consumer subsidies looks progressive, but also could look like austerity. I mean, there's a reason that the International Monetary Fund is in favor of removing subsidies. So removing those subsidies, which do sometimes benefit um, poorer households, um, especially in other countries, needs to be very well thought through. But we have enough experience with this to know what works and how to do that. In a, in a safe way. What about pushing for changes at the point of production, particularly around extraction itself? 
Yeah, so after you've thought through the, the moratorium and the bans types of things, um, I think that what we really need to do to confront this is to have some sort of system for permissions to extract that ramp down over time. So you could think about a price-based instrument for that, like taxes on production or on the carbon intensity of fossil fuels. That might not be the fairest way to do, the, do it, though. You could also think about a quantity-based instrument that has perhaps tradable permits for extraction. And there have been production quotas on all kinds of things, sugar, milk, opioids, all sorts of things uh, throughout history up to now. Um, so it's kind of in some ways familiar. I think that these conversations often go in the direction of, okay, how do you allocate such, such permits to extract? Um, and there's also a danger of, could these end up propping up the fossil fuel industry if there's continued regulatory capture of the institutions who would hand out and set the limits? So, I mean, it's a challenging instrument to figure out, but we need to be putting a lot of thought into it. Um, I mean, the situation warrants it. Another strategy that you mentioned that you would like us to consider as part of a, a toolbox for this decade that we're in, obviously more challenging than some of the lower hanging fruit, is to nationalize or buy out the private fossil fuel companies and put them out of business. You mentioned earlier that while the fossil fuel companies we think about in the United States are private, that so much of the world ha already has publicly owned, nationalized fossil fuel industries. And of course, you know, they're, they don't want to part with them. They don't want to put them out of business. Tell us about this idea and how that would circumvent perhaps the challenge to hold on to something that could bring in revenue. Permission to extract, which I just talked about, is a lot easier if the fossil fuel assets are already in public ownership. Um, and so there's um, a present context and a history for government control of private companies. It's not as unusual as we might think. Um, the, the challenge is how do you keep the intention to sunset industries pure? Um, if the regime changes, you know, this could be done under one government, but then you have another government come in and it's like, hey, let's make use of this resource and ramp up production again. Um, so there, there would need to be a legally binding mechanism for exit, for going out of business. Um, but if, the, if these are publicly owned things, you could have the government determine levels of production and a path for sunsetting operations. Um, and if you call it public ownership and control rather than nationalization, it, it pulls quite well. It's a popular notion, actually. And the cost of it is pretty doable compared to what we have spent on other things. Um, you don't necessarily have to print a bunch of money to pay for it. You can do it with conventional routes around taxation and reallocating the budget. And so um, there's a number of people and institutes who have wrote about this. Gar Alperovitz and colleagues have calculated that you could buy out some of these fossil fuel companies for about $200 billion a year over seven years, which is not unlike the size of, you know, some of the things we're painfully watching um, the negotiations on Capitol Hill right now around. But I mean, compared to the extreme costs of climate change, it's a real bargain, I think, to simply buy out um, these companies. I wanted to ask you if, you know, given everything that you've said uh, in this hour, the arguments that you make in your book, Ending Fossil Fuels, and I should say my guest is Holly Jean Buck, do you expect anything to come out of COP26, the meeting of world leaders, around the question of the environmental crisis, the climate crisis? I mean, I expect more of the same, which, which isn't nothing, but it's also very minimal compared to what we need. Do you feel like activists who are from the United States would be better served focusing on the, this government here? Oh, I think that right now is a critical time in the U.S. for, for climate advocacy. Um, I'm just so 
disheartened when I talk to my students and they don't understand that there's, you know, two really important pieces of legislation being debated or the contents of what's in them. Um, the Democrats have totally failed, in my view, to message and sell the, the benefits of both, you know, the infrastructure and the reconciliation bills. And um, so, I mean, obviously, we have to work on different fronts at many scales. I do think there's some semi-important stuff that will happen at the COP around wonky things like Article 6, which involves a mechanism for carbon markets that will have, you know, how they set it up will have real world impacts on people. Um, but it's, you know, a pretty small part of the, the action that needs to take place. Well, staying a moment more with the question of the United States, much has been said about the interests in the Democratic Party uh, tied to fossil fuels that are impeding the ability of any significant climate legislation going through. But I wanted to ask you, what is his latitude, that is President Biden, in reining in fossil fuels without Congress using executive orders? There's a few things that can be done um, involving, you know, production on federal lands to some extent. But I think that they're I think that we really need a congressional response to this to build the infrastructure that's needed. Um, there's some good things in these bills around things that would make it easier to build new transmission lines, stuff like that. But I think the situation we're in really speaks to the failure to build enough political power, especially in these rural areas, to have the votes in Congress to get it done. How optimistic are you that the kind of changes that need to happen over the next 10 years or less might be possible? I mean, in many ways, what you've been describing is a situation where there's a sort of sidestepping or out for both governments who may be benefiting very directly from the fossil fuel industry, as well as governments, of course, who are subsidizing the fossil fuel industry. But what you've been arguing is it sounds like the framework of net zero gives these governments an easier out in terms of ostensibly addressing the climate crisis at the same time without taking on the more thoroughgoing changes to the economy that would be needed to put fossil fuels out of business. In terms of the kind of catastrophic changes that are certainly being predicted at this point if action isn't taken to really rein in fossil fuels. How optimistic are you that whatever form it takes, that governments will take sufficient action to keep things from getting to that point of two degrees or higher warming? I think that net zero as an out can only function as a fantasy for five years, 10 at most, maybe not even that, because it'll be pretty clear, you know, after a couple of years that things aren't going in that direction. If it remains this technocratic elite concept and is not engaged with communities in the land on the ground. Um, so there's a couple things that I could see changing this. One is a strategy of really working with rural communities to build more political power to get legislative changes. The other thing is that if um, other fractions of capital, like the tech industry, like real estate, insurance, others that um, have some capital and have a lot to, to lose really go up against fossil capital, you know, because they see it as an existential threat to their profits and continued existence and really um, change things. So the potential for some change from the business side um, is there. I mean, this is part of why I ended up writing a book on geoengineering as well, is because I didn't feel so optimistic about political change happening in the, the time that we need. But I actually feel more optimistic now probably than I did a few years ago. I think we've seen some social tipping points and that we'll probably see more. 
Well, let me end by asking you precisely about geoengineering. So this is the idea, pretty much untested, of spraying reflective particles like sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere as a way of making the sky permanently gray or white and cooling the planet. There are those who argue that the kind of most apocalyptic scenarios that one can imagine to do with climate won't happen ultimately because elites would turn to geoengineering before they would let all of their assets be destroyed. Can you tell us what you think the fortunes of geoengineering are at this point? Well, right now we have barely any research on it. So it may seem like a real concept, but it's just something that's been modeled, um, not tested, all of the implications are not well understood, which makes it hard to like look into a crystal ball and see its fortunes. And I'm actually worried about that because I think that more research would give us a clear picture of what the risks, but also possible benefits in reference to a world with climate change might look like. And if we don't have that information, we risk having politicians or others kind of championing it as a thing, even if it might not work that well. So um, hard to say right now, but maybe it'll get more attention or maybe not. Maybe it'll just be canceled. That's another possibility. Holly Buck, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with Holly Jean Buck. She's Assistant Professor of Environment and Sustainability at the University at Buffalo. She's the author of Ending Fossil Fuels, Why Net Zero is Not Enough. That's been the topic of our discussion today. You can find a link to that book published by Verso at againstthegrain.org. Her other books include After Geoengineering. And you've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune in again next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. Please visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio and a way to sign up for our podcast. And you can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio or follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. Radio Against.